is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir. On this week's show, the business of kidnapping. And all they can see is flashing lights, people in guns, smoke coming out of the fifth floor with the hotel. Mark Harris, Vice President of Crisis Response Services at Olive Group. The most important thing is eyes wide open. Don't have stressful moments because we can't have stressful moments. Head of Special Risks at AIG, Jonathan Gregory. Some risks are uninsurable, undoubtedly that, that is the case. But the, I have to say, the fundamental value of the policy is the risk management that comes with it. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. Hello, welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're joined by two people who have to deal with kidnap and ransom scenarios on a daily basis. Joining us in the studio is Head of Special Risks at AIG Insurance, John Gregory, who manages the firm's K&R, or Kidnap and Rescue Policies, and Mark Harris, Vice President of Crisis Response Services at Olive Group. Mark, let's start with you. Is kidnap really so likely or so prevalent that you need to insure against it? Kidnapping is a day, daily occurrence uh, for a number of locations around the world. And... From the point of view of duty of care on behalf of your employees uh, and the ability for you as a company or indeed as an organisation to respond effectively, you need to have a good crisis management plan and a good response team to assist you with expertise. One way of mitigating the cost of these type of events, which can be quite huge in fees for the response consultants and other uh, liabilities like that, an insurance policy is the best way of doing it. Uh, we recently saw Bernie Eccleston's mother-in-law caught up in a situation. Does it uh, cover families? Basically, as a kidnapper, what you're doing is you're looking for someone who is going to be worth some money. Secondly, that person must be vulnerable. So you will look, you'll find the right people, and then you will follow them, you'll uh, carry out reconnaissance and surveillance, and then see which is the easiest to take, and then take that easiest person. It does not necessarily have to be a mother-in-law. It could be a chauffeur with a child going to um, school or something along those lines. The children are actually probably the most or the easiest um, people to, to, to attack, let's say. I wouldn't necessarily say it's children. I think it's someone who is vulnerable. So that could well be an oil worker who, in spite of telling that oil worker in Nigeria that they're not to go to this location or this bar or that, whatever, they get slightly over-refreshed. They get invited somewhere and then they lose five, six, seven, twenty days of their life because they've been kidnapped. John, is it is it often because of stupidity that people get kidnapped? I think I, I think that it, it's less stupidity and naivety, probably. I think the point that Mark just made is a, is a, is a very strong one. In a, in essence, what we find is the insurer is often the policy holder, so the principal of the family or the board of directors, if it's a company, and not actually the individuals that that are abducted. It'll often be those more junior managers, or it'll be family members who perhaps don't get the same, to Mark's point again, duty of care or risk management advice that an awful lot of senior persons who travel to high-risk environments will get. And those people are generally a little bit more vulnerable, and particularly so if they tend to follow the same passages to work or school to the point about school children every single day. And it becomes very predictable and easy for those individuals to be to be taken if we're focusing on, on the kidnap risk. And is it becoming more common? Because I remember as a kid, it seemed to be in the 70s, it seemed to be more prevalent, uh, let's say, in the Western world, the kidnapping 
things with either the Bard of Meinhof, the Red Brigades, or people like that. Uh, that seemed to be more in fashion, let's say. Um, is it becoming more prevalent now in, in let's say, the third world or in, in you know, the geopolitically damaged places? I think there's a shift mark, isn't there? I mean, if you look, we certainly as insurers, and we're one of the sort of leading two or three insurers in this product line, we pay less losses, let's say, in those traditional locations like such as South America. There is certainly a growth um, of uh, abductions or extortions more in the Middle East, more in Africa now. And it, it's, it's a great question actually to direct to Mark, I think, because obviously on the consultancy side, he's seeing that activity both as an insured client and not. I should say that, Mark. I think to go back to your point about the 70s and Bader Meinhof and, and Brigata Rossa and, and others, those kidnappings were normally politically motivated because of the terrorist agenda, and therefore they wanted to have media coverage of those, and so therefore it was in the public domain. That's not to say that in the 70s there wasn't a huge amount of kidnapping going on in Latin America, which we just didn't hear about. So from that point of view, uh, you can get a slightly skewed sort of idea of, of where it's happening, because there were suddenly high-profile, high-media-covered events which will say, oh, hello, it's now happening in the Middle East, or it's now happening in Somalia. And we saw this to a degree with Somali piracy as well. You, know, you can't hide the fact that a vessel with 26 crew has been taken by someone, and they're now demanding a ransom. So it has come out of perhaps in the 1970s, where it was quite clandestine. Uh, people were, didn't talk about it, uh, and it's become more open. And that's happened also through sort of Hollywood with films and things like that. The other thing which I think is interesting is that trends will move. Because even kidnappers are watching the media, uh, they're watching what's happening on the internet, and you'll see that there is some type of kidnap or some type of extortion developed perhaps in Mexico, uh, and then two years later you're suddenly seeing it in Colombia, then you're seeing it in Brazil, and vice versa. So those sort of type of things uh, will also add to you know, how you as a response consultant and indeed insurers have to maintain an awareness of what is going on in the various regions of the world to ensure that you are number one, underwriting correctly, and two, that you are an ability, you have the ability and the resources to respond uh, to the client's satisfaction. Presumably technology has an effect on that. Huge uh, impacts of technology. Uh, the primary one that I've been banging a drum about for some time now is actually social media. When we talked uh, initially uh, in this sort of um, interview about what kidnappers will be doing to look for their targets, there is so much information out there now on individuals that really a lot of their work is done very, very quickly. And when you start looking at Instagram, when you start looking at pictures, you're getting the geographical uh, and time chronology uh, from those pictures. You can see where someone lives. You understand how their route to work is going and all those type of things. So essentially, you are able to build up a very, very good picture. And that, in time, also makes it quite difficult when it comes to the response side, because what you don't know is how much information those kidnappers have. So one of the things that we do is we do a uh, social media audit on the family or the organisation to see what is out there, because if we can see it, then the kidnappers can see it. So I'm off on holiday to Syria for a few days. Um, what should I avoid doing? In short, I wouldn't go to Syria. <laughs> yes, <laughs> number one. Does that, does that, mean that might be a bad example. Are, there are situations where people are uninsurable, from your perspective. Say, so, well, sorry, you know, you can't go, or we can't insure. I think, I think, yes, there are. I think, I think there are certain scenarios where you, you know, you use the expression naivety, but foolhardiness may may actually be the the right terminology. And frankly speaking, we do sometimes see it with certain 
no disrespect at all, but certain freelance journalist activity is pretty close like, to the like wire. John McCarthy and then Terry Waite went there and he got kidnapped in, in Beirut. I mean, that was pretty stupid, wasn't it? Well, I, I think I think at, what, what you find what you find with with, with journalists, understandably, is of course that they're pursuing a story, and we do. I mean, on that point, I think the parallels are, are very close to Syria now. Ultimately, journalists go into that type of environment, but you know, it, some risks are uninsurable. Undoubtedly, that that is the case. You know, that example there, Syria's a poor. I'll give you a better example. Possibly somewhere like Nigeria, I think might might be a better example. Even Mexico is a good example because people people go there all the time. Yeah. But I, I I think. So what should we avoid doing on social media then? I think from our point of view, what we'd say if you are a British person going out to a recognised tourist resort in Mexico, essentially you are going to be fined from the point of view of kidnap for ransom. What you've got to be aware of there um, is, uh, as, as a British tourist, you've got to be aware of crime, and also becoming the innocent victim in so much as. Um, certainly I wouldn't um, frequent many of the holiday resorts on the Pacific coast at the moment because of the cartel battles that are going on there, the turf wars from that point of view. But if you look at Cancun, if you look at Cozumel and those areas, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're still fine, but it is the crime side of it. But if you are a Hispanic tourist going out to Mexico, it is a different uh, threat picture for you because you speak the language, therefore the Mexican criminal is not necessarily going to have the linguistic issues uh, when it comes to negotiating for a ransom or something like that, or an extortion. So again, Spanish-speaking people need to be aware. And when we look at statistics for Mexico, people say, OK, US nationals are now being taken uh, in Mexico. Yes, they are US nationals, but they are of Hispanic descent. So they might be first or second generation. So again, from the point of view of the kidnapper, it's in their culture. You know, they know about kidnap, they've got the same language, you know, and we will be able to do this successfully. Whereas someone like myself, six foot two, you know, walking along, they're not they're not going to take me on from a, a kidnap point of view because they know it's not going to work. But okay, I'll take his wallet, I'll take him to the ATM, we'll go through his accounts, hold him past midnight, uh, and then get the second tranche out and then leave him somewhere to fend for himself. So essentially you're too much like hard work for them. Yeah. Okay. In the case of Mexico, but again. Going back to that, and part of what we do with clients is make sure they've got the right risk picture or threat picture for where they're going. So myself going to Nigeria, that is a different threat picture for me as Mark English Harris. A lot. Yeah. Isn't that the other thing that don't you provide or isn't there a, um, somebody who provides uh, uh, advice as far as security is concerned, whether you go around with you know, two people or something you know, like a, in your car or... I mean, the behavioural things, is that, is that, yeah, is that the service? I mean, is that one, one of the real benefits of these policies is, is, and we talk a lot about this, there's the financial risk transfer. So if the worst should happen, I have to pay money, uh, I'm reimbursed by insurers. But the, I have to say, the fundamental value of the, of the policy, and this is why the skill base of the consultants are very critical to the integrity of the policy, is the risk management that comes with it. And generally, most insurers will offer a degree of that, either part or whole financed as part of the insurance placement. So, I mean, hypothetically, if I was to insure someone who was going to Nigeria, to use that case, um, in the next month or so, I may have a conversation with that client through the insurance broker around the sort of advice and support that the consultancy can provide. And then that leads on to the conversation with, for example, a company like Marks, who will provide that. And, and we also, we're very, very keen for a lot of our buyers to access that because, of course, fundamentally, it reduces our likelihood of a loss because, back to your point, an awful lot of travellers are very naive. 
Uh, and a lot of insurers are putting things like not only informational services, but tracking behind their products at points so that you know, individuals are always known where they are at any, any point. And that means that, for example, you can be in an environment like Nigeria, but equally and topically in Brussels or Paris, when the worst can happen and organisations and families want to know where individuals are and that ability to reach out to them. Mm -hmm and know exactly where they are is an important benefit, I think. And I think a lot of people view kidnap ransom policies as purely about kidnap, and they're fundamentally not solely about that now. They are very, very broad in terms of the benefit. And I think one of the issues probably been over the years, Mark, and I'm sure you agree, is that because there's been sensitivity around the product, not, an all, not much has been said about all of the value that comes with buying one of these insurances. So... You know, an individual will probably think, well, I have my travel insurance and that's sufficient. But I think, I think picking up on what John was saying, people have for a long time been fixated on, oh, kidnap and ransom. OK, yeah. the ransom side of it is, is, is actually, unless we're dealing with the terrorist organisation, but the ransom side of it is, is, is relatively small in the overall cost of that event. Um, and it is the other aspects of the insurance policy in conjunction with the response consultancy. So it is, as you said, online information services. It is a briefing. It's a uh, crisis management health check. You know, what have you got in place? So if we're talking about ABC Group in Bradford who are going out for their first uh, international project, they're in a consortium going out to Nigeria, they, you know, what is out there? What do we need to think about? What do we need to do to prepare our people so that so they know what they're going to do um, if something goes awry? What about the meet and greet in Lagos Airport? What about the transport, to the, transport and transfer to the helicopter uh, landing where we're going, then going to take them offshore or we're going to take them further down to the Delta in Warri or in uh, Port Harcourt? And what do they need to do there? But also they're making sure that you have got suitable... Uh, communications plans in, in place and that those workers know what they can tell their families about so that their families understand that if something goes awry that their loved ones are going to be looked after, that the company is going to look after the, you know, the, the family, make sure they're uh, looked after and that, that, that all of their requirements and needs are addressed, perhaps protected from the media if, if that is creating problems for them or, or those type of things. So all of that is there and the costs of all of those will be picked up by the insurers. So it's about preparation. Yes. At this point, I should probably drop in that we've previously spoken to Chris Voss on this podcast. He's the former lead hostage negotiator at the FBI and that's episode nine. One thing that I, I wanted to ask is, you know, governments famously do not negotiate with terrorists. How does that sit with the product you offer? Does, I mean, is there, has there been any criticism? Uh, I think that there, uh, over the year, I mean, this is a really good question. Uh, over the years, there's been periodic debate around the, the sort of fundamentals of this insurance product. And of course, it's extended to, to government positions. The insurance companies are hugely aware of how far in the event of an, uh, of an incident that their role can extend and what their responsibilities around the sort of legal, the legal parameters. And in answer to that question directly, what, what will generally happen is an organisation, of course, has to pay or not pay, depending on the, the circumstances. And that's driven by uh, legal issues as well as the pure negotiation. What then happens is the insurance company stands behind that and is only ever brought into that conversation at a point where a reimbursement has to be paid. And I think one of the fundamental misconceptions is that insurance companies, in, any, in some sense, fund these 
these payments, and they absolutely don't. They have to wait until an organisation has been able to pay, and that's important. And what generally you find now, particularly around some of some of the regulations, and, and you know we've talked um, the most on top of it is the UK Terrorism Amendment Act, is that companies have to go, depending on the, the scenario that occurs, have to go through a series of processes with legal support which satisfies the government's position. And once those have been satisfied, so too does the insurance company as well. And and so there are, you know, certainly the leading insurance companies will have had, um, you know, the necessary advice and experience in that process. But, you know, I think it's a very, from Mark's perspective as well on the consultancy side, they too are aligned with that process. And we've been very careful over the years to, to make sure that we behave in the right way. But also I think that there, there's a lot of concurrent activity as well. So whilst we talk through the process, as John has just elaborated on there, we will make sure that the client's crisis management team, number one, has their, has their legal counsel on that team. Then more importantly, when we are dealing with an international uh, event, uh, perhaps there might be an, um, a suspicion that it may well be terrorists, we'll make sure that they are engaged with the correct authorities. Uh, no, from, from whichever country they come from, but also that they are engaging with an international law company as well who, who are au fait with these issues to make sure that all the checks and balances, as John has, has talked about, are in place and are carried out uh, to make sure that they are able to discharge their duty of care to their employees in a legal, responsible and robust manner. Who does the negotiating then? Well, the client or, the, or a client's representative okay. will negotiate, but what happens is the consultant is there as a support and guidance. And I think this is where we get away from Hollywood and television. Um, so you're not, you're not and, up and late so at night sweating? We're not up late at night, we're not wandering around in our dressing gowns with a glass of whiskey talking to pirates <laughs> or, or things like that. We will find someone within the client's organisation, perhaps a family, uh, someone from the extended family or, or a lawyer who knows that family if we're dealing with a family case, and they will do the talking. Primary reason for that, it is often illegal for a third party in a number of jurisdictions to do that. So we don't want to end up in jail um, because it's also bad for, for, for us and reputations and it's okay. useless for the client because we're not helping. Secondly, no matter how good our own foreign languages might be, we're not up to scratch on the nuances and what's ever happened recently. And going back to your idea, not your idea, but your talk of technology, what happens if it's a video phone and say, OK, fine, put the video on. Who is this to the, to the victim? The victim says, I have no idea. It's not great. No. And if you're measured and calm, which we would be, then are they a professional negotiator? So therefore, we need to up our ransom demand because if they can spend money on them, they can spend more money on their loved one. Or are they police or foreign law enforcement? And therefore, it might be prejudicial to our safety and our security if we let the victim live. So what have been the most stressful moments in your careers? If, any, if ever an individual's life is, is threatened, and frankly, that does happen uh, as part of the negotiation, and in reality, sometimes that is very stressful. And some clients we're relatively close to if we've had a long association. But I, I think because we are, to my earlier point, as an insurance company, we're generally standing behind the company that, that works with the consultancy to drive the successful resolution. I think we're once removed. I think it's a better question probably to I go to Mark. We don't have stressful moments because we can't have stressful moments because we are there as the objective advisors. I know that sounds strange to say, but you know we, we cannot do it. Where we perhaps, and I think in my own experience, 
where there has been to a degree anxiety is in that moment once perhaps if we are paying a ransom, a ransom has been paid and we are waiting for the release of the victim. And depending on how long that takes, you then have to start looking at measures. We review what we have done up until that stage. Have we done anything right? Were there any signals that this might have gone wrong? No, there aren't. Okay, well, let's just wait a few minutes. And then you might have to start thinking about what are our actions after that. But I'm you know, very pleased to say you know, that invariably it has been, okay, right, the following day someone has turned up safe, alive and well. So the, the idea... A sigh of relief. Yeah, there is a sigh of relief. Of course there is. Um, and then once you've debriefed and everything like then that is when you can, you know, sit down and say, whew. That glass of that challenging for this process is, you know, you have a psychology degree, a military background. I mean, is it... So the, major the majority of the consultants that we have in Olive Group will have been uh, military, law enforcement, government service, so some form of intelligence service or something like that. But also we'll get people who are lawyers who, you know, fancy change, uh, investigative journalists, um, but the, the, you're looking for someone with the characteristics rather than the background. Because you need someone who is able to engage with the client, listen to the client, and then offer advice, which can quite often be counterintuitive, with some good arguments and good communication skills. And what you can't have is, you know, Colonel Retired, you know, Johnson going in and ordering them around. Because, you know, that is not the way to do it. I find it useful when we go through our people that, you know, that they have had some form of uh, crises that they've had to manage themselves, perhaps be it in the family or be it extended family or indeed in their previous existence. And it's how they've managed to get through that, what they want. Those are things that sell the individual rather than the fact, you know, that they look, look smart and they can shout at people. Okay, so I, I kind of, you know, because a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or, or looking to develop professionally, I wanted to work out how we can apply the principles that you guys use every day to business. So, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. How can I avoid getting ambushed in my business? John, perhaps you'd like to start. Well, I, th I think that, and we see this an awful lot, more, more and more of our customers interestingly are, are buying this product that we would define as SMEs. So you use the term entrepreneurs. And I think it goes back to me, my earlier point. We've talked an awful lot about kidnap so far, but there are the insurance policy is geared to provide protection against pretty much most forms of external malicious approach. So when you are setting up a business and you are developing commercial customer attachments and you are traveling overseas, there is an inherent requirement to due diligence in that in that process. And I think Mark made a very good point earlier about, for example, opening a business in Nigeria and, and, and working out who you're trading with. There is a role there that insurance of this type can play in that process, but also consultancy. And I, and I think that comes back to the early point made as well, is because there's not enough understanding about the breadth that the insurance policy provides from a support perspective, you don't get enough of those customers coming in. And I think what we're trying to do an awful lot in my company is, is make the appeal of the product um, you know, wider. wider in a sense, and, and adaptation and, and those sort of conversations are coming. But I know, for example, that, that the Marcus company will be asked an awful lot about customers they are potentially dealing with and what they should do as a startup business in that environment. And I, th and I think that that is where the consultancy is, is a great support act, I think, too. I think what, from, from what we do as a business, what can you take away from that to the entrepreneur or the small to medium size? The most important thing is eyes wide open. 
knowing exactly what is happening in your environment and having an ability uh, not to take too much time about it, but, you know, okay, this has happened. What's, what, what's our overall strategy? What's our overall objective? Does this impact on that? Yes or no? If it does, what do we need to have countermeasures against it? What do we need to overcome it? Uh, if it doesn't, fine. So to go back to that, you know, it is knowing your business environment. It is knowing who your competitors are. It's knowing who your clients or your customers are going to be. And it's knowing what are the threats against your overall offering. And once you've sorted that out and you understand what those threats are, then you monitor those threats. And as something comes up a little bit, oh, hello, what's happening here? And to go back again to another thing that came out earlier on, uh, and that is, you know, it, it is not just that we're sending someone to Nigeria. It's not just that we're sending someone to Mexico or Brazil. As, as John said, you know, it could well be that we've got people going off to a conference in Paris and something dreadful happens out there. So what are we doing to look after them? Or we have people who are in a conference in India and militants come in and take over a hotel and they're now hostages. So how do we manage that? We can't influence what that government is going to do because it's a sovereign government in charge of responding to that situation. So we can't, we can't influence the response, but certainly we need to be able to manage the impact of that. So it is reaching out to that family who are watching CNN or they're watching BBC World and all they can see is flashing lights, people in guns, smoke coming out of the fifth floor with a hotel. You know, how do we help them best to understand what is happening and how can we reach out to get people out to them, settle down with them? Uh, know that you've got someone perhaps with a foreign commonwealth office speaking to them. Know that you've got people on the ground ready to receive their loved ones when they're released. So eyes wide open and manage expectations. We're going to wrap up there because we're just coming to the time. But thank you guys so much. I, you're absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I could thank talk you. to you for hours. <laughs>